Hi, Stuart here. Welcome to the podcast. It's a bumper edition this time because we're talking to Hannah Pruduk, first of all, about the Mexico City E-Prix. And then afterwards, we're talking to Yelopnik journalist Elizabeth Blackstock about her conversation with Formula E boss Jamie Rigel. So, enjoy. This podcast is brought to you um, in the hope that you'll subscribe to Motion E Plus. We've got loads of great exclusive content, including a Lucas Degrassi interview, a feature on the um, recent decline of Nissan Edams, and um, coming up soon, a feature on self-driving vehicles as well, just moving away from motorsport. But uh, we also have something on the environmental agenda of Extreme E and um, where exactly that side of motorsport is going in the future. Um, Hannah Prudick is here, and I'm very pleased to have her here to talk about the Mexico City E-Prix. Um, Hannah, you've got a lot of exciting stuff you're doing uh, in motorsport at the moment. Do you want to just talk us through what you've been up to recently? Yes, it's been a very busy kind of time thing since Formula E ended last season so I've I'm currently working for WTF1 as an intern getting to cover mainly the Formula 1 season getting to dip my toes in the Formula E when exciting on track action happens and just finishing off my Masters so it's been very busy jam-packed time of things but it's great to see Formula E back you don't realise how much you've missed it till it goes off your screens there was only really one true winner coming out of the weekend and that was uh, Porsche I'm not going to say incredibly slow, but they looked slow in Diria. Um, Lotterer um, managed to get a couple of decent breaks in qualifying and uh, w- was able to hold it up the front for most of uh, race one and race two. Verline, though, didn't have a good time and um, they turned it right around in Mexico. Can we attribute that just to um, it being a track that suits them better or just a matter of them dialing together that package finally? so more in terms of the package I think a lot of teams up and down the grid are kind of struggling even though it's the continuation of the car from our season still struggling with those teething problems and those setup issues I think in Diria Porsche were able to kind of set things up and take things after the first race and improve on their performance and this time around they just seem to master their package from the get-go it's interesting to see which teams had a strong race in Diria and which teams have had the strongest in Mexico because it doesn't a lot of teams, it's not always coinciding, and I think for them, it's the track does suit both drivers. I think it suits them incredibly well, and they were fast kind of from the get go. But I think you have to think with that team at the moment if they can get it together on a more consistent basis, they could be in the fight for the championship given the performance at the weekend. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was just a coincidence, obviously, but it, it's it's interesting that uh, uh, their former team principal, Emil Lindsay, left the team after Diria. And um, uh, Jack Nichols jokingly caused a new manager bounce for uh, his replacement, Florian Merdlinger. It was interesting as well how Porsche, as soon as they got to the front, they were able to play the team tactics game. And um, that's something we've seen a lot from other people at the front, particularly DS to Cheetah. But... Porsche played it to perfection this time, um, particularly the decision to uh, push harder and run an extra lap because they had the battery left to do that, um, which obviously stranded the two Jaguars, among other people. Um, it was a tactical masterstroke from Porsche, and it was incredibly ruthless as well, wasn't it? Oh, completely. It's more than one where you think, 
I do love Informally when they get strategic with things like that. As much as it's gutting to see how badly affected the Jaguars, I think it is just it just shows how strategic ultimately and because you do have to be in Formula E and I and especially the uh, the margin which they did it by because I think if it had been oh say ten seconds clear with the timing being that they were going to extend the lap, it would have been a bit more obvious to a lot of the teams around them. But it just caught so many people unaware, and I think they did perfect that team game i was surprised that lotterer maybe didn't go for a move i was having expecting him to go for a move on verline for the lead but i think if porsche got in their head that they're championship contenders in lotterer's mind it does make more sense for him to play the team game early on in the hope that the favor would be returned further down the season and ultimately for them if that if a potential move had cost them the race win i think they They'd never heard the end of it, given the fact that obviously Verlain missed out on the victory last year and this kind of redemption for that victory now, I think, meant a lot more than necessarily who won the race. Ultimately, it was a Porsche was going to win it one way or the other and they would just play that team game perfectly. Well, you're absolutely right. And um, I, I think the other thing is that, you know, Andre Lotterer, um, we can't sit inside his head and, uh, you know, claim we know what he was thinking, but we can guess at least. And he's 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 40 now um he is someone who's made a good living out of formula e but also he's a racing driver who is looking at the long game and he's looking at his career and um i think he knows that if he plays the team game this season probably porsche will give him a drive in lmdh uh in in then in their new um in their new sports car um if he chooses to leave formula e at the end of the season or you know he he might be retained by the team if he performs well for them and so yes it will have hurt him a bit not being able to claim his first formula e win after all those seasons in the category but I think he will take this. I think second place in a in a one-two for his team is something that he will see the inherent value in. Absolutely. I think it's well then. It is an interesting dynamic, as you say, looking at that LMDH project as well, and also the rumours that potentially Porsche were trying to sign Evans over from Jaguar for this season, and whether Lot I'd say the two maybe Lotterer was more vulnerable in the seat compared to Verline, and whether that had some influence in it because we obviously don't know what Porsche's long-term future is in the sport in relation to the uh, potential Formula 1 programme. I think for him, it just makes more sense to play that team game. And I think as well, it also has that long-term objective of the team ultimately we're paying it back. As much as you play the first person you don't want to lose to is your teammate. In this situation, it is the lesser of two evils for him to kind of take the knock of Verline being the one to take the victory in the hope that it does get paid back. And I think given the pace that they showed last week and if they can continue that throughout the season, they will be a real threat. And having that on Lotter's side, that he has done that favour, now means hopefully they'll repay it. Arguably the team that's got the most hanging um, um, hanging on its performance this season and uh, the most open-ended uh, is uh, Diaz de Cheetah. Uh, both Jean-Eric Verne and Antonio Felix de Costa were rumoured by various people, including Sam Smith from the race, to be um considering their options for the gen 3 era and or possibly outside of formula e so um it, it's it's an interesting dynamic there obviously uh ds to cheetah looks like a partnership that's not long for this world but with the chinese investment from seeker possibly causing problems for the to cheetah team uh and ds 
well, uh, obviously Maserati from the same auto group from Stellantis coming in next season. And um, we'll have to see what happens with the DS brand in Formula E. But uh, they came back strongly, third and fourth in the E-Prix. Um, is this the start of a typical Tachita title challenge with uh, Van and Acosta picking up steady points and staying in contention and then grabbing it at the last? I'm less hopeful this time around. I think years ago I probably said, yeah, it, is, it does sum up a typical DS Tachita title challenge. But I think this time around it's just so unpredictable with the number of new tracks potentially on the calendar. Obviously we've got Jakarta, Vancouver and we're heading to Seoul. We've got also, a lot of talented drivers up at the front now, I think, feels possibly even wider open than it's ever been in the championship, and I think that can harm them. If we were having, say, six rounds in Berlin, like uh, we did two seasons ago, I'd have absolutely touted to Costa to take the title because he does perform well at that track. Jake Dennis, who finished 10th just behind the two Nissan Edams, um, he, he only f finished 10th after Degrassi's demotion. And that was a big step back from um, Andretti in, in that race. And uh, it was probably Dennis's worst weekend for a long, long time in Formula E as well, considering his improvement in the latter half of last season. Um, what went wrong for Andretti? And... Um, it, it, would you say that the early uh, promise in Diria or this obviously much less promising weekend in Mexico is the true measure of the um, ex-BMW Andretti package? I'm not too sure what actually went wrong with Andretti this weekend. They just seemed off the pace from the get-go and ultimately I think that is the difficulty with Formula E. If you're off the pace in qualifying, like Dennis qualified on in 15th, ended the race 10th, Five places gained thanks to Degrassi's penalty, but they weren't really going to be challenging for points most likely because it is just so difficult to do so. And I think that they just seemed off the pace. And I think that is a very big difficulty for some of the teams is if you're off the pace, they're struggling to get back on it and you've not got a second race in Mexico to be able to bounce back. I think maybe if we had had a second race, that would have given us a better indication of whether it's an issue with the package or whether it's the track or whether they're not able to adapt to things as quick as they like. I'm not going to take this as kind of an indicative measure of the Andretti's performance. The one thing I will take it though as a measure of is Oliver Askew. I think the first two rounds have shown us he's got a lot of promise in that Andretti and I think he could be like Dennis was very much last year, the kind of up-and-comer, the surprise of the season in terms of the drivers. I wasn't expecting to do as well. I think as he gains confidence, he'll only improve and it does give Andretti a very strong lineup. Just hopefully they can match that with getting up to speed and the rest of the season. And now here's my chat with journalist Elizabeth Blackstock about her chat with Formula E boss Jamie Rigel in Mexico. Jamie Rigel is the boss of Formula E and he's got some very big plans for the sport in the new era of Gen 3 rules which come next season. Um, as journalist Elizabeth Blackstock found out when when she spoke to him at the Mexico City E-Prix. So we thought let's have a chat to Elizabeth and find out what he said. 
Um, Elizabeth, uh, thank you so much for uh, coming on to talk about this. Uh, you published an article on Yelopnik, which is the site that you write for, um, um, f about 40 minutes ago as we're talking. And um, it's about um, your trip to Mexico to um, uh, as a guest of Formula E to watch the Mexico City E-Prix. Um, I'm, I'm particularly interested about this article because you spoke to Jamie Rydell, the boss of Formula E, um, and mm -hmm. he gave some interesting quotes to you. Um, just uh, just to maybe talk us into that. So uh, what was the general uh, point of your discussion with him and uh, what, what were you looking to ask him? We had a pretty a pretty general discussion uh, in terms of interviews. So I just wanted to ask, especially a lot about the future as we're heading into the new Gen Three era. Um, this will be our last the last year with the Gen Two cars. So I was really interested to hear his perspective um, because I'd also talked to Alberto Longo just before I spoke to Jamie, uh, and you know we had a good conversation as well. But I asked kind of where do you see Formula E in the next five years? And his response was really interesting um, in the sense that he was thinking very, I guess, long-term, thinking that he wants Formula E to be a tier one sport, as he called it, uh, which essentially in his eyes means that it's globally recognized as you know, being the pinnacle of racing. So it would, as he said, essentially be the Formula One of electric racing. Um, but the way that he spoke about it, I thought was very interesting. Um, as a, you know, I've been watching Formula E since the very start, so I've really loved the fact that anyone can win and everyone is competitive, um, but that is apparently not the direction that Formula E wants to go in the future. Um, they're instead looking more at a, I guess, just letting manufacturers and teams uh, prove how good they are uh, by letting them just kind of have at it uh, tech-wise, which, you know, the goal is to establish a much a more condensed championship battle. Um, uh, something more around the lines of two to four drivers competing for the championship as we head into the end of the season as opposed to 18, which was the case for season seven. <laughs> well, yes, um, of, of course, you know, in season seven, you, you had uh, you had championship bolters like Jake Dennis uh, coming from coming from oh. the back of the grid at the start to uh, well being being in with a chance uh, going into the last round. And, you know, mm -hmm. if uh, if um, if uh, Jamie Rydell had his way, that wouldn't happen, um, of course. But um, it, it was so interesting reading these quotes and I, I maybe should read them out just to be sure that people know what he's talking, know what he's saying. Um, yeah. He says, um, we have to create the conditions for the best drivers and the best teams to emerge. In Formula One, you had this battle between Lewis and Max last year. How do you create the conditions to have those epic battles and rivalries? And then he goes on to talk about um, how tier one sports allow for uh, greater innovation, um, as, as I'm paraphrasing. Um, th thing is, this is maybe a maybe the first time that Jamie Rydell has shown a significant difference between his leadership and Alejandro Agag's, as was a couple of years yes. ago, in that uh, Agag was all for um, parity, making sure the privateers have the same chance of, uh, of leading uh, a race as the manufacturers. And... Um, course uh, when he was in charge Nissan were actually prevented from running a twin motor powertrain after their first season running it because yeah. it was felt by the other teams you know look we don't want an arms race um, in, in the words of Fallout Boy this this is a scene not an arms race and yes. um, they, they didn't want that and 
Um, it's it's. I think it's really important to keep that, uh, but that's just my opinion. Um, do you get the sense that Rydell is really interested in uh, ploughing a different path for Formula E, and why does he see Formula One as being something to aim for? I do think he's he's really looking at, I think, establishing his legacy within the sport by doing something drastically different than his predecessor, uh, which in many ways I can respect. I think he he's on the right path of thinking that you know, Formula E should be a venue of innovation. Um, that's been a big criticism of the sport since it first started was that there are a lot of artificial limitations placed on development, um, which is which is fine um, and has created that parity. Um, but I do think that there is value now in opening up that, that exploration. Um, he, Rigel also mentioned that Formula E is essentially the only motorsport series currently that has... Uh, the direct influence on uh, the production car side. So they're taking uh, the technology developed in Formula E and transferring it into the car that you would buy as your daily driver. And that's not something we see anymore in other sports like NASCAR or Formula One. Um, so I do I do think that there's value in that. Uh, he's recognizing that there's a potential here as being a, a lab for development in terms of the growth of electric technology. Um, at the same time, part of what I've always loved about Formula E has been the fact that anyone could win. Um, I was, I started off as being a very big Dragon Racing fan, mm. uh, and that team did not do well for many years. And part of what was so great about Formula E, though, was the fact that I could enjoy a team that wasn't, you know, they weren't going to win the championship but I could still root for the drivers and hope that they'd get a podium or a win. And it was totally possible that that could happen. And I think it would be very disappointing if that were to go away. And part of what I really like about Formula E is the fact that there are so many different winners. And I think it's really interesting because that's something that Formula One is currently striving for. They want to kind of level the playing field a little bit to prevent someone from spending hundreds of millions of dollars to win a championship while these lower tier teams are scrambling just to just to show up and make the grid every day um so it, it's i don't necessarily know that going completely the direction of formula one is the right path here um i can see why Regal would be thinking that uh it formula one is the most recognizable sport but a lot of that does come down to the longevity of it. Um, anyone, anything that's been around for decades is going to have a legitimacy that a brand new comp competitor is not going to have. Um, so, you know, I think, I think it could be interesting. Um, I will hedge that I am a little bit skeptical. I do, I do want to continue seeing, um, you know, a little bit more of a level playing field, but I'm sure you know, this isn't going to be a, a flip of the switch. This is going to be an evolution. So my, my hope is that we won't suddenly have one team like a Porsche or a Nissan suddenly dominating everything where, and you know, instead we'll have a, a little bit of a progression toward every team growing and developing. I didn't get the sense from the interview you did with him that he was looking to become an electric version of Formula One. But what I did get the sense um, of was, as you said, that uh, he wants to um, kind of move the calibration away from competitive balance as it is now towards um, 
if you like, healthy imbalance in that teams that innovate or teams that have the best driver or the best um, uh, powertrain uh, can um, can make more of a difference than they are now. Uh, that's the sense I'm getting. Is that the sense you got from talking to him as well? Um, it was. He also did mention a little bit about being kind of the Formula One of electric racing in a earlier part of our interview which I thought was interesting, um, but he did kind of distinguish to to say, you know, it is that that healthy competition. Um, you'll be rewarded for the amount of effort you're putting in, um, which is, it is generally related to how much money you're, you can spend. So um, that's that's been kind of an issue I think Formula One has run into is they, there's some teams that are able to spend an extortionate amount of money while others are, you know, just just chasing and hoping to catch up. So I I think this is it, it's not a bad path to go down, but there has to be you know, healthy competition can can really only exist within certain limitations. Um, if everyone is given the same kind of the same chassis, you know, that's one thing. If everyone is allowed to develop their own powertrains, their own chassis, that's another. But if there's teams that are allowed to put in you know pour the full force of their their manufacturing and engineering facilities behind creating a, a a race winning car that's great but you know the privateers are still i think the backbone of formula e well, yes, uh, Dragon Racing, uh, your team, um, has been there from the start and um, yeah. is, is is still there um, and um, still provides uh, plenty of colourful stories for us every year, usually involving a driver being replaced, but still. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and of course, they've got everyone's favourites, uh, my man Antonio there now, so uh, hopefully they'll... Mm-hmm. Hopefully he'll improve over the season, but um, also, you know, in 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 various shapes and forms, uh, the the team known as Neo Three 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 has been there since the start uh, under various management structures. But uh, I think they've still got one or two employees from when they were Team China. So um, th- th- there are teams that have been there since twenty fourteen, and of course, Edams through Renault and Nissan. So. Um, it would be a shame to lose that healthy privateer stroke, you know, semi-privateer influence. Um, hopefully it doesn't. The interesting thing that I noticed uh, just reading into Rigel's comments to you was um, I always thought Formula E uh, was more like the NBA in the sense that, you know, you can you can build super teams in the NBA uh, and, you know, uh, teams can rise and fall in fortunes. And um, th- there is that equality brought in because of the draft in the case of the NBA. Um, I always felt that Formula E was balanced in um, in an almost artificial sense because of qualifying last season, but still there there was another kind of balance there. Um, Rigel though doesn't come from the NBA; he comes from Manchester United, and Man United have been one of the most ruthless uh, sports teams in exploiting an unequal market for its own ends. Um, you know, if you're a Man United fan, you'd say that's a good thing, but. Um, he, he's also uh, maybe now with Man United we're seeing the other side of that which is that after years and years of you know his boss at the time Ed Woodward claiming that uh, you know the important thing is social followers the important thing is commercial backers we're, and we're now seeing a change in fortune to Man United and we're seeing actually that you know the team on the pitch is the important thing um, to a large extent 
Um, how much do you think his background in Premiership football comes into this point of view of imbalance being okay? Actually, I think it's the word you use there. Ruthless is the really the interesting part. Um, it gives. I do feel like there's a sense of um, kind of almost throwing these teams into the deep end and kind of seeing what they're able to accomplish. And I, I kind of have a feeling that that's more of what we're going to see in Regal's era uh, in Formula E is that we're going to to have a little bit more of that those opportunities for imbalance and for really pushing for one, um, you know, pushing for something. And that something appears to be that that imbalance, um, the healthy imbalance, as he I think he would he would term it. Um, but I think that there are drawbacks to that ruthlessness, uh, especially as you've mentioned. Um, you're not focusing so much. I think you need to take you need to take into consideration everything. And Formula E is still young enough that I think that there should be a, a healthy emphasis on drawing fans, attracting fans, establishing healthy bases of teams, uh, and making sure that we're not pricing them out or competing them out of existence, which, you know, is something I'm, I think needs to be approached carefully. Um, we've seen a lot of turnover in Formula E, and I think Rigel is hedging on the fact that big manufacturers are interested in coming to the sport, which is very valid. And, and I think that's, that's a fine bet to make, but we've also seen teams popping in and out. So someone like Mercedes who can come in really develop a car and then decide, you know, we'll be done after a certain number of years, uh, which is, I believe that's, it's a little bit risky right now. We haven't seen that there are manufacturers who are willing to really commit for the long, long period of time that I think Rigel is envisioning here, um, which is going to be what's, what's the most important and being able to be ruthless and being able to foster those, those, uh, those healthy imbalances, if you will. I, I think I think I understand um, what what you're saying there, and uh, I, while I don't totally agree with it, uh, obviously mm-hmm. it would be wonderful to have Jamie Rydell, um come and talk to Motion E at some point. Hopefully, I'll yeah. uh, be able to put put in a good word with him and uh, get that. But um, fascinating to hear that, and of course there was plenty of other stuff in the article as well. And uh, you 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 seemed to. Um, Enjoy the weekend as Fe's guest, and you seem to get a lot of useful stuff for Yolopnik as well. Um, Mexico City's always been one of my favourite epre because uh, it's it's a permanent circuit in part, but it's also mm-hmm. it's also partly a baseball stadium. So you've got that fantastic sort of uh, crucible type atmosphere there. Um, how much did you enjoy that? I I had a great time. Uh, Mexico, the that circuit specifically has been a bucket list track for me for many many years, uh, and I've been trying to make this specific trip happen with Formula E for about three or four years now, and it's just never it's never worked out for whatever reason. There's usually a timing conflict and you know what have you. So it was it was incredible to be there in person. Uh, it was incredible be there as the series starts to open circuits back up to fans because Mexican fans are absolutely delightful. Um, I've, you know, I've gone to all of the Formula One races in Texas for the past five years and the Sergio Perez fans turn up in droves to see this man race. So they they carry that same energy with them uh, wherever they go. 
So the the stands were packed. It was just it was a gorgeous weekend. The series did, I think, a really great job of bringing new fans in. Uh, there were a lot of people who seemed to be, you know, they had no idea what was going on, uh, but they were having a really really great time, which is I think the most important thing. That's going to be the thing that really draws people in. You know, an affordable ticket and an enjoyable experience. Um, it was it was delightful. It was a great weekend. And we don't think about it over here in Europe, but you know, Mexico's got a huge history in motorsport. Obviously, the um, the the Rodriguez brothers, but you know, mm-hmm. then then in IndyCar, Adrian Fernandez, and of course Sergio Perez now. So um, they've pretty consistently over the years had a big Mexican star. Um, do, do you think that makes Mexico a pretty important market for Formula E to keep on its calendar in the future? I do think so. And I really got the sense that everyone else strongly agreed uh, that I spoke to about, you know, the the circuit and specifically the race in Mexico. Um, putting it putting it in the middle of the city in Mexico City is a huge deal. There were so many people who were turning up. Uh, I could not believe the amount of people that came on race day. And I think it's, you know, Mexican fans are fans everywhere are important but i think especially to to capitalize on fans that are already incredibly passionate about sports and that already have a very deep history of of racing heroes that's that's crucial um you know there's a lot of talk about kind of breaking formula 1 into america but we really struggle because we don't have a legacy really or at least a modern legacy to look back on to say we've had great race car drivers that have gone on to the international stage and I think that's that's what's so important about Mexico is that they've had that. There's a there's a legacy of this in that country, and it's it's really capitalizing on the fact that people are going to show up because this is something they're familiar with. It might be a little bit different, uh, but it's it's still the same competition that they know and love. I mean, they anytime there was an overtake, everyone was cheering. Didn't matter who overtook who, they were just excited to see action. Uh, and that's that's the kind of passion you want to see, especially with a series like Formula E that, you know, it's been around for eight years, but it is still really establishing its foothold in different markets. And this is one of those markets where, you know, you you kind of want to have that recurring stability and, and Mexico is what that is. Uh, if if Formula E were to venture further south in the United States than New York, uh, obviously we can both think of a gentleman who would want to go to Las Vegas for obvious reasons. Yes. But um, mm-hmm. is there a place? Is is there a city in Texas which would go crazy for Formula E? Because I, I I just love the idea of electric electric motorsport coming to Texas. It seems it seems incongruous but fun at the same time. There's a lot of potential, honestly. Um, Austin, I think, is the the natural place where you would think. Um, there's a little bit of that motorsport history thanks to Circuit of the Americas, but the city is also incredibly capable of shutting down streets for a weekend or a week at a time thanks to the, the music festivals and all of the other festivals that go on. So it wouldn't be impossible to go to Austin, um, but I do think I am I'm a little biased there. I love Austin, um, but I do think other cities... Um, like Dallas would probably be a great option just in the sense of getting it out to as many people as possible. And Dallas is really kind of the epitome of what you think of when you think Texas. Austin is a little bit of its own unique place to be. Uh, It's not, you know, the big hair and cowboy boots that you would think of that you'd get more in Dallas. 
So I think there's there's a very good there'd be a good market in either one of those places for a race. Fantastic. Um, Elizabeth Blackstock, we'll talk to you again, but thank you so much for talking through your article and I'm glad that you enjoyed your trip to the EPRI. Uh, follow Elizabeth on yolopnik.com.